God together. I don't have any new announcements, so we'll just have the service together. So I trust you've got Psalm 111. Now this is the first four verses, and we will sing it to the tune in the Trinity Hymn Book to 215, the head that once was crowned. So this is Psalm 111. By this time, you should have several psalms to different psalms that maybe you could sing during your own devotions and so forth, if you know the tunes. So anyway, let's stand together as we sing Psalm 111. So then, turn to Psalm 111, if you would please. Psalm 111 begins with the same words that Psalm 105 and 106 ended with, and that word is hallelujah, or uh, the English would be praise Yah. Y-A-H is the shortened version of Yahweh. I 
I struggle with that a little bit. It's, it's like giving God a nickname, and I, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable with that, but there it is in the Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. So praise Yah. It's good to compare Psalms with other Psalms and to see uh, similarities uh, and differences and opposites, etc. Psalm 111, we'll find next week, is a companion of Psalm 112, a very uh, similar structure. Um, what we wouldn't know, being uh, English speakers and readers, is that this psalm is in alphabetical order. Each verse begins with a, in order, uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, something I would never have been able to uh, come up with uh, by reading it in, in our language. So they, they, they took their poetry uh, very seriously and... Uh, it's good to good to see that art art is is not contrary to scripture and and the way uh, we learn and uh, see things. Well, this psalm is a psalm of of the works of Jehovah, and to uh, it begins out Hallelujah, and, so, and to praise God is to praise His works. They are one and the same thing. A man's works are what he is. Who he, who he is, is is known by what he does. And Yahweh is that way. <clears throat> and his works, we will see, are great. We will see they are, verse 2, they are honorable and they are glorious. Verse 3, interesting, those are actually nouns. And so God's works are the very definition of, of honor. They are honor. They are glory itself. And they're all done in righteousness. Everything God does is perfect, perfectly, sinlessly righteous. He does nothing wrong ever. And so that is to be praised. Don't you admire men who don't sin? <laughs> Those are the men we admire, right, as, as Christians and, and, the, and the men we sometimes are uncomfortable around because we are not living up to their standard even of a, of a man. But let alone in being in the standard of God, they are done in verity, truth, verse 7, and judgment. And because uh, they are the works of God, uh, the writer to Ecclesi- of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, uh, said, I know, verse, chapter 3, I know that... Whatever God does, it will be forever. Nothing can be put to it, and nothing can be taken from it, and God does it so that men will fear before him. And that should characterize our worship is the fear of God because his works are so steadfast and immovable. They endure forever. And because his works endure forever, therefore his praise endures forever. And we are... Today, testimonies of that, a continuation of the works of God. I will build my church, the Lord said, and here it is. Praise Yah, I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart, in the council of the upright and in the congregation. Yahweh's works are great, pondered by all those who delight in them. 
His work is honor and majesty. His righteousness endures forever. And that is why I chose the World English Bible, because it it, uh, translates those words as nouns. He caused his wonderful works to be remembered. Yahweh is gracious and merciful. He has given food to those who fear him. He always remembers his covenant. And notice how covenant is coupled together with the things that God gives. Here's the, the first one, giving food. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are established forever and ever. They are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption, the other works spoken of. Perhaps they could all be rolled into one. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Again, his work and the covenant connection. His name is holy and awesome. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. All those who do his work have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now before we come to look into God's word, take the hymns of grace. Hymns of grace, 378, Soldiers of Christ Arise, 378. Let's stand together as we sing.
that you're nice and comfortable, I ask that you stand again, please, (laughs) for the reading of God's Word and for prayer. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10. Let's pray. Lord God, we have no strength of our own. What we have comes from upon high if we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, what folly it is to think that we of ourselves can do anything. Lord, we're totally dependent upon you. We are from the dust of the earth, and only by your breath of life have you created us. Lord, even every beat of our heart and every breath that we take is dependent upon you. So we claim these promises. Lord, we we come before you and we ask for your help, and you've promised to give it to us. So, Lord, as we gather as your people this day in your house, we ask that you send your spirit to strengthen us, to go forward as as soldiers of Christ into this dark world. Lord, give us the ability to be light and salt into our community. Bless your word this day, for your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we've just finished lunch, and food is still on your mind, and I assume on your stomach. But I just had a question. Do you have a list of comfort foods that you enjoy? Perhaps items that you enjoy more than anything else. Sometimes when you indulge in them, they bring joy and contentment and satisfaction They give you a sense of delight. Now, I don't know about your list, but my list might uh, include such things as ice cream and fried chicken and spaghetti and meatballs. And these dishes satisfy our appetite and our hunger like no other foods. But what about your spiritual appetite? Do you have passages in the scripture that are your go-to verses? Are there particular places in the Bible that you like to pause and feed your soul? Perhaps some verses that when you read and reread them, God continues to open up himself to you. You read those scriptures and, and he becomes closer to you or you see God in a different way. Or you see instruction that God lays out before you that you've never seen before. From my childhood days in Sunday school, God has put before me a a regular smorgasbord or buffet of morsels that I can go to and return to and find comfort in, find direction in. 
his word. These are nothing new. I mean, maybe they're on your list. Um, but among them, God has um, favored me with uh, reading his creation story and uh, Noah's Ark and David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den. Most of all, the mighty works of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then there's the life of Peter and Paul, and you probably could add to the list. So this afternoon, I would like to return to one of these comfort passages and share some thoughts, none of which are new. You've probably heard them before. But perhaps, perhaps God would refresh your spirit and give you greater insight as to how he works in our lives through these passages. God's word in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So with that in mind, let's see what God has for us in way of instructions from 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17, one of my comfort passages. We see David facing the giant Goliath here. With COVID and lockdowns and economic chaos, we too have giants to face. And maybe you are facing giants, I'm sure we all were, prior to this pandemic episode. Perhaps you were battling giants as they pertain to your health. Or perhaps you're struggling with financial giants. Family issues may be looming like a giant in your present situation. We all have giants, and some, like Goliath, may seem insurmountable, more than we can possibly bear. So how do your giants compare to what David faced? What can God teach us from this example in his holy word as we fight our giants daily? They don't all take human form, but I'm sure we all have them. In the book of 1 Samuel, we are taught about how God in his divine plan anoints a new king for Israel. God has removed his spirit from Saul and has asked Samuel to go to Bethlehem and go to the house of Jesse. After, David reject, after God rejected seven of Jesse's sons, the youngest one, David, was brought in from the sheepfold. And God said to Samuel, this is the one. Anoint him. And the Spirit of the Lord came down powerfully from that day on. This was the secret anointment of uh, 
of David. He will be anointed again later when he becomes king. But after this, David was sent back to the hills to tend the sheep and the goats. During the day, he would herd them to good pastures for grazing, feeding them. And when they were thirsty, he would go to the various wells and springs and bring water to them. Or he would take the herd and take it up to a mountain brook and let them drink. Unbeknownst to David, God was teaching him how to live off the land and where to find protection in the caves and what ways and different valleys to travel and how to defend himself. All these things he was learning as a shepherd, which he would later use in his life. In the summer, he would sleep with the herd under the stars. In the winter, he probably had a tent or slept in a cave or in a stone sheepfold. But he was always close by to his father's herd. His hours were long and lonely. Again, unknown to David, God was teaching him important life skills he will use to perform God's will. The life of a shepherd gave him time to build and become proficient on the lyre, a simple musical instrument. The simplest one was made out of two pieces of wood put together at 90 degree angles. And then it would have three or four diagonal strings from one piece to the other. <clears throat> With this instrument in the hand, he then would sit down to write songs. And as Brother Cliff has been doing, many of the songs of the Psalms uh, were written by David and later put to music. Later on, as a shepherd, he was called into the king's court to ply his musical trade to soothe the spirit of the troubled King Saul. And since God's spirit was with him, I'm sure that he observed the uh, courtly pro uh, procedures and the traditions. And he would uh, observe those for later on when he would apply them to his own kingship. So we see here that David took his responsibilities seriously. He fulfilled his courtly duties, then returned home to tend his father's sheep, and he would go back and forth between the two locations. We find ourselves now in chapter 17, and we see David facing Goliath. Now, if you read through the first couple of verses of this chapter, you can get the picture here that the armies are meeting in a valley. And on one side are the Philistines, and on the other side is the Israelites. And nobody wants to attack the other. Because one of the first rules of warfare is that you capture the higher ground. It's much easier to shoot down at your enemy than to crawl up the rocks and being fired upon as you go. So neither one of the armies want to go through the valley and then attack 
the other one. So it was not uncommon for these armies to pick out their bravest warrior, or sometimes it was five or ten men they would send down, and they would have those people battle it out to the end, and that would save on killing soldiers, save on your armament, would save on your horses and chariots, and then the winner would capture the other army for slaves. And that's what we see here in verse 4. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now again, I want you to picture what your giants are like in your life and kind of compare them to what you see here with Goliath. Because you have large giants too. Based on the King James Version of the Bible, six cubits in a span would make Goliath almost ten feet tall. So next time you see a basketball rim, remember that's about ten foot tall. And if you hear them talking about office buildings that are five stories tall, each one of those floors are probably ten feet. So um, gives you an idea. When you consider the average height of a man in biblical times was five foot three inches, which is the height of my beautiful wife over here, then you could see why they thought Goliath was a giant. They're five three and he's ten foot. Verse five says, And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. This means that Goliath's helmet weighed about 66 pounds. And his coat of brass, his his coat of, of mail that he would wear for protection, was roughly 175 pounds. So you can imagine, if you would, your 10 foot neighbor with a backpack of 175 pounds wearing a 66-pound baseball cap. Big guy. Verse 7 says, And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. The tip of Goliath's spear, not, not the entire spear, just the tip, The pointy end of his spear weighed about 20 pounds. Next time you pick up a 20-pound sack of potatoes, think about that. That's how much just the tip of his spear weighed. So I guess you could say without question, Goliath was a fierce-looking, trash-talking, massive killing machine who struck terror in the hearts of his opponents. What giant Goliaths are you facing today? Do some of your giants sound like this? That they seem almost insurmountable? That they're almost unbeatable? I'm not talking about humans here. 
is living from paycheck to paycheck, barely making it ends meet, one of your giants? How about standing firm in your faith in an evil, corrupt world? Is that one of your giants? Perhaps you're the only one in your family who is a disciple of Christ. There's a lot of battles dealing with that. Or your children may have strayed from the faith. That's a battle of giants. So how are you dealing with your giants? Are you making a typical response of King Saul's army? Verse 24 says, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Is that your response to your giants? I know what it's like. I've been there. I've done that. So what lesson from David's encounter with his giant might we utilize in our personal battles? Well, I think the first lesson David teaches us is to be obedient. Without complaint, David obeyed his father when Jesse asked David to take food to his brothers and check on them. Verses 17 through 20. When David's father asked him to do a job, David obeyed. When David was prompted by the Holy Spirit to take a stand for the Lord, he did it without hesitation. Verses 26 and 29. When Saul asked David to take his armor for the battle, David apparently tried to comply, but had to respectfully decline in verses 38 and 39. God has placed authorities over each one of us, and we should be willing to obey in such a way that would bring honor to God, our Father. God has established these authorities over us, such as supervisors at work, Parents at home, civil authorities such as police and magistrates, and even elders in the church. However, there are times when obedience is not possible. Peter spoke of this in Acts 5.29. We are to obey God when men's laws go against God's laws. But if you can't obey those laws, our submission to the consequences of disobedience is necessary in these cases. For example, David could not obey the king's I'm sorry, Daniel could not obey the king's command to stop worshiping Yahweh. He did submit, however, to the punishment that was given to him for that disobedience. When in fact God gained a great victory before the people of Babylon because of Daniel's submission to those consequences, not because of his refusal to worship the king. In this example, David and Goliath, we see David as a young man of obedience. God calls us to be obedient servants. Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. 
He is the master, and as his servants, we should joyfully obey. The second lesson David can teach us is to show up for the fight. You've got giants. Are you showing up for the fight? When I was younger, <coughs> which seems like a long time ago, uh, my height was um, greater than most people my age. And so the upperclassmen, the bullies, would like to pick on me. And I did not always show up for the fight. Um, I would very seldom defend myself. But if you picked on my sister, you would not see the end of it. I would come after you tooth and nail. So one of the things that we have to learn to do, because we all have these giants, is to show up for the fight. Sometimes you didn't get to pick the place or the time for your battles, but you must always be ready for the fight with your giants. You never know when temptation will raise its ugly head. When you do show up for the fight, you might have to take the fight to the enemy. Something we don't always think about. Verses 34 and 35. And David said unto Saul, The servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. David just didn't defeat the lion and the bear. Scripture says that David went out after them when they stole what belonged to him. There will be times in life when your giants take what belongs to you. He may steal your financial income. Or maybe your home is taken in a fire or a flood. A family member or spouse may pass away. A very common giant is one who steals your precious time. And then another who steals your health. You must be aggressive in going after what the enemy has taken. So remember, you will never win a battle if you don't show up for it. Third lesson, don't run from the battle. Again, verse 24, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and we're sore afraid. So let me ask you, when you're facing your giants, the giants in your life, do you run from the battle? Ignoring a problem will never make it go away or lessen the intensity of the battle that you're facing. Running away in the midst of a raging battle with the devil will either make you one 
a prisoner, or two, running away will make you a casualty, but it will never make you a victor if you run from the battle. If someone or something is causing you a problem, it's better to face those consequences. You don't have to run from a battle because you always know who is with you in your heart and at your side against every giant you will ever face. Psalm 118 says, verse 6, The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do for me? Fourth lesson. If you're facing difficult, if not seemingly impossible, life situations or other attacks of the enemy, you can take comfort in knowing that God is with you. He's with you no matter where or what kind of battle you're facing. With God at our side, there's no reason for fear or even doubt the outcome of the battle. A sinful people with God-given emotions, this is a difficult lesson to learn. And personally, I'm still struggling with it myself. But there are 44 times in the King James Version of the Bible where we are told, be not afraid. And there are 66 times in the New Living Translation where the scripture says, do not, don't be afraid. Even though God should only have to tell us something once, sometimes we have to be reminded, especially when we're facing the Goliaths of doubt and fear. Let me just briefly take a look at four of those verses, and I'm going to paraphrase them here. 2 Kings 1.15 says, Be not afraid of him. Deuteronomy 21 says, Be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee. 2 Chronicles 20.15 Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of the great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. In Mark 5.36, be not afraid, only believe. These four verses tell us not to be afraid of him, not to be afraid of them, and only believe. With God on our side, we have no reason to be afraid of the giants in our lives. Fifth lesson, don't worry about what other people think. Your job is to serve God. No one can fight your battles for you. No one else can take your place on Judgment Day. 
You and you alone are accountable for what you do or you don't do. Other people may face a shortage of money or courage or wisdom, but I find that there's one area that they're never short on, and that is telling you what you should or should not do. People are always willing to share that with you. First Samuel 17, 28-30 from the New Living Translation says, But when David's oldest brother, Elab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know what your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now? replied David. I was only asking a question. His older brother was upset because neither he nor his younger brothers or any of the other soldiers in the army were willing to stand up to Goliath. Sadly, some people, instead of fessing up to their own shortcomings, seek to tear you down, what you can do, or what you're capable of doing. That way it won't reflect poorly on them. But it's critically important that you never allow their opinion of who you de- of, of you to determine what you do or do not do. You are serving God, not them. In life, there are many times when you, like David, will ask, what have I done now? The attitude and actions of others may not be so much as to what you're doing as to what they are not doing. So consider the words of Colossians 3.23, very familiar passage, reading from the Amplified Bible, says, whatever may be your task, Work as if it's hardly from your soul, as something done for the Lord and not for men. Remember, it's not important what others think, but what God thinks about what you're doing. Lesson six. You choose the weapons you fight your fights with. What weapons are you going to choose? to fight your giants with? Well, there are three things that you should remember about choosing your weapons. First, get rid of anything that doesn't work for you. Eliminate anything that can be a weakness or that will restrict your movement and possibility of success. 38 through 40, Saul had his own military clothes and armor put on David, and he gave David a bronze helmet to wear. David strapped on a sword and tried to walk around, but it was not used to wearing those things. I can't move with all this stuff on, David said. I'm not used to it. When Samuel anointed Saul king, the Bible says that Saul was head and shoulders taller than the average man 
while King Saul's armor didn't weigh as much as Goliath's, it's generally agreed by historians that it probably weighed about 100 pounds. If you've never been used to wearing that much gear, it would be heavy and cumbersome and very unmanageable. In life, remember that just because somebody else is doing something in their battles, that it may not work for you. For example, maybe you've seen a friend or relative dealing with some of the issues in their life using technology. And they use the technology to help fight or conquer their, their giants. And you have a hard time just answering your cell phone. So that weapon may not be for you. Set it aside. Find out what works. And that's the second thing you should think about when choosing a weapon. Find something that will work for you. Play to your strengths. Verse 40 in the contemporary English version. David took off the armor and picked up his shepherd's stick. Now, there's some talk about what that was. You've seen the, the, the staff with a crook on the end, the shepherd's crook, used for herding the sheep and, and as a walking stick. But most shepherds also carried with them about a three-foot club. And sometimes they would embed uh, rocks and, and uh, metal into that club. And that may be what David used to take care of the lion and the, and the bear. He went out to a stream and picked up five smooth rocks and put them in his leather bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he went straight towards Goliath. David's weapon of choice would not work for anybody else but him. And that's okay. Because he's the only one going to battle. The third thing to be mindful of when picking your weapons Remember that you possess weapons that can defeat every foe. I'm not a big fan of the translation called the Message Bible, but I thought it was applicable and well said when they quoted 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. And this is what they wrote. The world is unprincipled. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. The world doesn't fight fair. But we, don't, but we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have, never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demonstrating the entire mass... <coughs> they are excuse me, for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, for tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, for fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse to the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready for, <coughs> are ready at hand 
for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. You have weapons that can defeat any enemy. The word of God, prayer, unconditional surrender of your your mind, soul, and body to Christ. Final lesson. Do something with what you're, what's in your hand. President Theodore Roosevelt said, do what you can with what you have and where you are. When fighting your giants, you should always start from where you are. David did not look at the giant from a human perspective like the rest of the army who ran away. David looked at him from God's perspective. Who is this small, infinitesimal creature who profanes the living God? He looked at it from God's point of view. David did his job with what he had. David didn't put his trust in his own strength or his skills as a marksman. His confidence was in the living God. And he didn't waste any time attacking his giants. He did it immediately. At that very moment, David did not hesitate or procrastinate, but when the Spirit of God called him to action, he responded immediately. So just remember, you're not just fighting these personal giants for yourself, but you're also to bring glory to God who will never leave you nor forsake you in the midst of your battles. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these promises from your word. We thank you for the example of David. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us from your word ways to fight our own battles, our own giants. But the most important thing we need to remember is that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That we cannot do these things on our own. That you've imparted to us gifts and weapons to fight temptation, to fight the corrupt world, to speak out against heresy and secular philosophies, to claim the truth of Christ to a dying world. Lord, we face difficulties every day, and we can battle those difficulties with the help of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.